You guys have a Bible. Uh, we'll be in Mark chapter 4. Uh, go ahead and uh, open up to that as we're uh, continuing this morning to look at uh, the parables of, of Jesus. And, and as we're doing that, I want us to just start by talking about expectations. If you've had an expectation for someone or something and how that expectation may have been completely off base. And so many of you know I'm an Iowa fan. I, I like the Hawkeyes and probably one of the most infuriating things about being an Iowa fan or, or let's be honest, being a fan of any college football team besides Alabama over the last few years is probably unmet expectations. These expectations that we can put on a season and how those hopes are just dashed by the season. I have seriously given up trying to predict how Iowa is going to finish, uh, what the, the fall is going to bring for that football team, and, and every single time I have even just the smallest bit of expectations for a good fall, it seems like everything that can go wrong does go wrong. And being an Iowa fan has taught me one of the most important adages of my life, and that is aim low and avoid disappointment. When we have these ideas or expectations in our life, and when they're not met, sometimes it leads to a variety or a vast array of different types of emotions. For some of us, when we have wrong expectations or those expectations aren't met, it leads us to anger. And so someone can respond and say, I expected my insurance company to cover all of my medical bills. And when they didn't, when I, when I found out that I was going to be on the hook for all of these things, I lashed out in uncontrollable anger. For others of us, we can say, I have wrong expectations, and those lead to some form of overreaction. I trusted that person, and they, they betrayed me, and I decided that I would never trust anyone ever again. And still for others, it leads to pessimism, like I just described with Iowa sports. I can't be disappointed if I just stop caring. All of these different types of expectations can be ruined or, or destroyed when they aren't met. And in Jesus' day... The people of Israel had some very wrong expectations as well. They had wrong expectations about the coming kingdom of God. The people of Israel in the first century assumed that the kingdom of God would just be established in one swift moment. Some of them assumed that the kingdom of God would come through a Messiah who would be a, a, an incredible military general. He would lead his troops into battle against all of Israel's enemies, a king that was so strong, a king that was so brilliant, a king that was so charismatic that every single nation would either be defeated or would surrender forever and be his servants. Others didn't believe that the, the kingdom of God would come through this swift military victory. Others instead believed that it would come through a moral revival in Israel. And so there were some in the first century that, that thought that if people just began to take their faith seriously enough, that if they just cleaned up their lives enough, if they got to this point where they lived holy enough, then the Messiah would come and then poof, his kingdom would be established on the earth. The nations would be unable to stand against the, the coming of God's Messiah, this overwhelming power of the Messiah and of his holy people, people who are holy not because God called them holy, but because they live very, very good ethical lives. And it's in this context, this context of, of all of these different understandings of the kingdom that Jesus begins to teach about the kingdom. He begins to teach the crowds. He begins to teach the disciples about what this kingdom is. And he says, all of your expectations about the kingdom, they're wrong. 
Every single thing that you think about how the kingdom is going to come, whether you think it's going to come through an onslaught, whether you think it's going to be a a conquering kingdom, Jesus tells us something different. He says that instead of of a a one-off moment where God's kingdom is suddenly and forever established, God's kingdom is going to grow slowly. It's going to go consistently, but it's going to grow steadfastly. Rather than being established through the holiness of God's people, it's going to instead be established by the Holy One of God. God And what matters instead is, is our response to that Holy One. Rather than this kingdom, rather than this uh, message of the gospel being something that comes through power or displays of, of might, it instead comes through the most unlikely of forms, like a simple plant growing in a garden, growing, growing, growing until it takes over the entire earth. This morning's passage comes from Mark 4. It's a a collection of just three short parables. All of them are about the kingdom. All of them talk about God's kingdom and and what it will be like. If you've had much experience with the church in the past, you're probably familiar with these stories. You may understand what Jesus is trying to communicate. If you're familiar with these stories, you may actually say, hey, you know what? We have an advantage that the early church did not. We've actually seen, at least partially, some of these parables come true. We've seen the kingdom of God start small, almost insignificant, and yet now it has spread and it has grown until it covers almost every single corner of the world. And yet, at the same time, we stand at an advantage because we're able to see how this has developed over the, the last several centuries. I think these parables are particularly relevant, particularly important for us in this cultural climate we find ourselves in today in the West. Today we live in a context that is very different than it was even 20 years ago, let alone 40 to 50 years ago. We live in an era where Christendom has disappeared. The United States no longer considers itself a Christian nation. Many Christians are left wondering if there is room for them in public spaces. And whether we realize it or not, I think the church today unknowingly has similar expectations for God's kingdom as the people of the first century did. And if we're not careful, we can also think that the kingdom of God comes through power, that if we just have the right people in Washington, then God's kingdom will come. Or it comes through this form of moral revival, that if enough people start living good enough lives, then God will usher in revival and his kingdom will come. But the reality is we see that church attendance has plateaued or it's decreasing throughout the United States. As those who only had a nominal association with the church, they they realize, they come to the conclusion that whatever cultural advantage they had about being a part of the church, being associated with the church, is now gone. And in some cases, actually, there's no cultural advantage, and it's actually a hindrance to being associated with the church. Books and articles are published, it seems like, on a weekly basis, talking about the end of religiosity in America, the rise of of the nuns or those who believe in nothing. And it's in this cultural climate, this climate about the uncertainty of God's kingdom, it can weigh heavily on our minds, it can weigh heavily on the hearts of so many of God's people that these parables are so so, so important for us. In these parables, we actually see two reasons why they matter so much for us. The first one is this. It reminds us of the the kingdom of God's true nature. It reminds us of what the kingdom of God is actually like. 
And the second thing is it, it reminds us that we can be confident that Jesus is not caught off guard by the trajectory of our culture. That Jesus is, is not surprised, he's not paralyzed with uncertainty about whether his kingdom can survive the rise of the nuns. Instead, these parables remind us to hold on to this truth, this one truth that these parables are all about, which is simply this, Jesus is Lord over the growth of his kingdom. Jesus is Lord over the growth of his kingdom. When Jesus walked the earth, it looked like his kingdom died with him on the cross. But then he rose from the grave, and everything that he had said about the kingdom of God was vindicated in that moment, and so the church grew. And it grew slowly. It grew painfully. I'm working my way uh, personally through the book of Acts right now, and that is abundantly clear, that the, the church of God grows painfully, but it also grows faithfully. Jesus is Lord over the growth of his kingdom. So let's take a look at these three parables this morning on the kingdom and see, as we talk about expectations, what actual expectations we should have about Jesus's kingdom. The first parable is found in, in verses 21 through 25. I want to read just the first half of this parable for us this morning. And he, Jesus said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. If you were with us last week, we looked at this first parable in the Gospel of Mark in Mark chapter 4. We saw that this is probably one of the hardest or, or most challenging passages in the entire Bible. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus is describing his purpose of parables, and then he says this in Mark chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven." In those verses, Jesus tells us that one of the reasons that he speaks in parables is so that our true hearts will be revealed. If we are willing to seek Jesus, if we are willing to under, seek Jesus in order to understand his message of the kingdom, that's what the disciples are doing here, then we will be given the secrets of the kingdom of God. And such an attitude, a willingness to seek Jesus and a willingness to, to grab onto Jesus and not let go of him reveals something about our hearts. It reveals that we have soft hearts. It reveals that we have hearts where the word of God can take root and it can produce a whole bunch of fruit. And that is the heart of a disciple. But if we are unwilling to seek Jesus... If we are unwilling to commit to this path of discipleship, if we are unwilling to sit at Jesus' feet, then it actually reveals that we have a hard heart. It doesn't make any difference at the end of the day whether our hearts are hard because we are hostile toward the gospel. It doesn't make a difference if, if, we are, if our hearts are hard because we're just too busy for the message of the gospel, if we're unwilling to surrender to Jesus every single area of our lives, whatever the case may be. It reveals that we have hearts that are hard. And every single time that we hear the word of God, we have an opportunity to respond to God's word in faith. And if we do not in that moment, then our hearts actually grow harder. 
they actually grow more difficult or more hostile to God or it's even harder or difficult for Jesus to speak to us. Now, if we read those two verses uh, here in, in Mark chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, if we read those two verses uh, by their own without fully grasping them, it would actually be relatively easy for us to conclude that the reason Jesus speaks in parables, the reason why Jesus has this message of the gospel is actually so that way he can judge more people. It would not be out of the realm of interpretation if you took these two verses out of context to say that Jesus is this sadistic preacher, that he speaks in riddles and these cryptic messages so that more and more people actually face judgment, more and more people are actually condemned, that the only reason Jesus is teaching in these parables is so that people do not have the opportunity to hear the gospel and to repent and to be forgiven. And that is why this parable is included right after last week's parable. This parable tells us that the true reason why Jesus speaks in parables is not because he wants to keep people on the outside of the kingdom. And if anyone figures out this message of the gospel, but it's just an accident and Jesus begrudgingly welcomes them in. No, this passage actually tells us that, that Jesus has a different purpose for parables, and that is to get you to seek him. To get you to seek him. A few weeks ago, I don't know, maybe it was a month or so ago, we lost power at our house for a couple hours one night. It was right when we were finishing up family worship and, and the kids, when the lights went out, they just thought it was hilarious they, they had, like, that we had planned this. And it would have been better if we were singing This Little Light of Mine or something, but we weren't. And, and they just thought it was hilarious. And so Crystal and I, we you know, we know what's going on and we're not toddlers. And so we, we realized the power's out. And so we began scrambling through the dark to look for our flashlights. And here's a life pro tip for you. If you have toddlers, make sure you keep your flashlights in a place they can't reach them. Otherwise, they will be gone when you need them, like in this moment. And so we, we start run, running around looking for a way for us to actually find out where we're going to you know, walk. And, and this is made even more dangerous by the fact there's toys on the floor. And, and we don't have these flashlights. Our phones are close to dead. We only have one candle in the entire house. And so we light it. And it's a scented candle. It's not really good for, you know, actually using as a source of light. But we bring it around with us the rest of the house, wherever we went. So we're cleaning up supper with this candle. We're getting the kids ready for bed with this candle. We're reading books with this candle. We put them to bed with this candle. And without that electricity, that candle, the only candle we had in our house, was our sole source of life. It was our only lifeline. It was the only way that we could have some semblance of normalcy in our life until the power came back on. And Jesus' message in these verses is a whole lot like that. Jesus says this message of the gospel, it's not like a candle that you light. It's not like a lamp that you turn on or you light up and then you cover it up so that way you can't see it. Jesus' message is not meant to be hidden. It's not meant to be impossible to understand. It's not meant to be too cryptic for us to be helpful. Instead, it is our lifeline. It's the key for us to live, to live a life worth living. These lives of meaning, not lives that are wasted. And Jesus knows that. And Jesus wants us to know that. And yet at the same time, that being, Jesus knows that being a part of his kingdom demands a response. It demands that we repent. 
It demands that we believe in the gospel. It demands that we follow him as his disciple. And so just like a mother bird can sometimes push her baby out of the nest to force that baby to fly, Jesus is speaking in parables to force us to respond. When Jesus speaks, you have to respond. Every single thing. There is, there's no possible way for you to not respond to this message of the gospel. We either respond in obedience with repentance and faith, or we respond by ignoring it, or by saying, not now, or by hardening our hearts to the gospel. And Jesus' hope is, of course, that we will respond with faith. We will respond with repentance. We will respond with discipleship. And that's what Jesus has in mind when Jesus says that nothing is hidden except to be made manifest. A lot of times when we read that verse here in this passage, we can say that, you know, this means that God sees everything that we do, whether it's good or bad, and it's going to be revealed in the last day, and that's, that's true. But that's not the context of what Jesus is saying here. Based on the context, Jesus is saying the only reason that he speaks in parables is so that people will come to understand his kingdom. He, quote-unquote, hides his message so that people will seek him. So they, they will seek to understand his kingdom, and that seeking will come to a saving faith. That's the first half of this parable. The second half of this parable says something somewhat similar, starting in verse 24. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Here, Jesus is driving home this point uh, uh, concerning our hearts once more. And he says that however you hear, perhaps maybe a, a better way of saying this is however you respond to the gospel, that posture will only increase. Your heart's posture toward Jesus and toward the gospel, they're going to set the trajectory of your life. And if you get into the habit of ignoring the call of the gospel to obedience. If you get into this habit of ignoring the message of Jesus, you're only making it easier for you to ignore it the next time and the next time and the next time. You make it harder and harder for you to respond with obedience. Your heart's posture toward Jesus, your heart's posture toward the gospel, they're actually setting the current of your life. It's like your life is this river. And with each decision that you make, it makes the, the water flow a little bit faster in one direction, a little bit faster toward whatever your life is pointed toward. And so you have to ask yourself, well, what direction is the river of my life pointing? Which direction is my heart pointing? Is it, is it flowing away from God? Is it flowing toward this heart hard and, until we get to this point where we continually ignore him to the point of no longer being able to respond to the message of the gospel? Or do we have a heart that is pointed toward Jesus, this heart that flows toward obedience? Are we setting up patterns in our life, habits in our life, rhythms in our life where we hear the word of God and we respond with obedience and repentance and faith? Do we respond with a soft heart? You see, this first parable, which it may not seem this way on the surface, this first parable, just like the others, is about the kingdom. It's all about the kingdom. This parable is telling us that, that Jesus is saying to us that his kingdom grows through our response to the gospel. 
Our, his kingdom grows through how we respond to the gospel. We are either a part of his kingdom or we are not a part of his kingdom, and that is all about our heart's reception of the message. Jesus is committed to the growth of his kingdom, and that comes through how we respond to the gospel. It starts with this posture of our hearts, and so ask yourself, what is the posture of my heart? The second parable, also about the kingdom, starts in verse 26. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he does not know how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Here Jesus tells the second story about the parable um, it's another story, uh, excuse me, about the kingdom. It's this other story about planting seed. It's the second one in the Gospel of Mark. But unlike the first one, Mark 4, 1 through 20, the focus here isn't on these different types of soils. It's not on the different types of hearts that we have in response to the Gospel, just like last week. Instead, he's focusing on this growth that takes place in the seed. And as I read this story, I, I just am struck by how little the farmer can take credit for the growth of this seed. Now, here's no, notice what I'm not saying. I'm not saying how little the farmer does. Uh, uh, it's just the focus here, and, and Jesus seems to emphasize this. It's just on how little he can take credit for the growth of his crop. Jesus seems to stress this by instead of focusing on the things that the farmer undoubtedly did, things like preparing the soil, things like watering, pulling weeds, keeping wild animals away, and on and on, Instead of focusing on these things, he focuses on the daily rhythm of the farmer. He says he sleeps and he rises, but the seed grows. In fact, we apparently have a very contemplative and philosophical farmer in this story because he begins to consider the nature of growth itself. He begins to ponder this, and, and while he may be able to grasp some of the, the scientific principles, overall this idea, this understanding of, of how something grows is just a, a mystery to him. So what is Jesus stressing here in this passage, in this parable? Well, he's stressing that growth doesn't come from the farmer, but instead it comes from somewhere or something else. And to bring Jesus' parable back to this understanding of the kingdom, what Jesus is actually telling us or teaching us, it's not you or me that causes the kingdom to grow, but instead it is God alone that brings about the growth of his kingdom. One of the, my favorite passages that talks about this concept is in Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus talks about, uh, about this idea of, of God's role and our role in the, the growth of his kingdom. And it says this, And Jesus said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Here, according to Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, it is not your responsibility, it is not my responsibility to call people into the harvest. It is not our responsibility to call people into the work of the ministry. That's God's responsibility, and that's God's responsibility alone. And yet, it is our responsibility to pray to the Lord of the harvest, that he would be at work in people's lives, at work in their hearts, and he would be the one who calls people 
into the work of the harvest. And the same, ministry, uh, same principle is, is true here in Mark chapter 4. Jesus is telling us it is not our responsibility to bring about the growth of the kingdom. That responsibility lies in the hands of the Lord of the harvest. It, it lies in his hands alone. Yes, we are called to pray. Yes, we are called to go. We are called to cultivate. We are called to invest in people. And yet, yes, we're called to work hard. But we do not bring about growth. The growth of the kingdom rests in surer hands, more faithful hands than yours or mine. You see, in this parable, Jesus stresses or focuses on this slow, consistent growth of this seed. It doesn't come, become laden with fruit overnight. It takes this long process for this seed to get to the point where it's ready to harvest. This process may seem slow, may seem inefficient. It may seem uh, like we don't know what is going on as we look at it from the short term, and yet it is one that produces an incredible harvest in the end. One of the joys of where we live is that we actually get to see this truth when the ground isn't covered in, in ice. We, we get to see this every single year. Every spring, we see the ground ready to receive seed. And then once it's received seed, it takes a while for that seed to actually poke through the soil. And then it takes even longer for that crop to begin to get to the size where it can bear fruit. And then it takes even longer for it to continue to grow, for that crop to mature until it is finally ready for harvest. We see this every single year. And when it comes to the kingdom, it's clear that Jesus and God, they have a, a very different timetable than we do when it comes to the growth of his kingdom, especially in our culture that is held captive by the urgent. It's held captive by the immediate. We are conditioned to expect immediate results. We live in the, in the age of online streaming, internet news, two-day shipping, cell phones, even the microwave. We live in this culture that has expectations about immediacy, I'm sure many of us, we have seen this in our own life. I know, at least for me, when I am looking at buying something online, I look at the price, and that helps me decide what I'm gonna, where I'm going to buy it from, but also, I look at how fast I can get it. It's this culture of immediacy that kills this understanding of how God works on a different timetable than us. God's kingdom grows and it may look slow to us. It may look like it's in a way that is insignificant to us, and yet it is consistent. It is steadfast. It is faithful. And it continues to grow and grow and grow until it reaches full maturation. And Jesus closes this parable by focusing on that maturation. He focuses on this idea of a coming harvest. And that's one of the joys that, that we get to see in celebrating baptisms like we did today is just proof positive of what Jesus is saying here, that his, his kingdom continues to grow, it continues to grow, it continues to grow, that there is a harvest that is coming, and every single baptism is a reminder to us that that kingdom is growing, that the blind now indeed do see that the dead have been brought to life. And that is what Jesus is teaching us here in this parable, that Jesus is committed to the growth of his kingdom. His commitment to his kingdom will never waver. He will never get distracted. He will never let it slip through the cracks. He will never put it on the back burner. His kingdom may not look exactly like what we would expect it or even what we would want it to be. And yet God's kingdom 
is at work and it is growing and he is faithful to let it grow. So consider that even when you factor in population growth over the last two millennia, even when you factor in that, there are more people across the globe that now believe, a greater percentage of people believe in the gospel than they did ever before. Consider that even in this cultural climate that we live in, that's becoming maybe less welcoming to Christendom, the church still thrives. The church still grows. Look at it even in our own story as a congregation. What started as nothing but a dream and four families now is what we have before us today. Jesus is committed to the growth of his kingdom. No matter how discouraged you may be, no matter how uncertain you may be, no matter how how minimal the growth in your life may seem, we can stand confident that Jesus is committed to the growth of his kingdom. And it's that truth that's echoed in the final parable. It's in a different way, picking up in, in verse 30. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. And yet, when it sows, is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Here we see that Jesus is telling us another story about growth. And this one, he uses this illustration of one of the smallest seeds in the world, this idea of the mustard seed. Mustard seed is roughly the size of a grain of sand, a larger piece of grain, a grain of sand, but roughly the size of a grain of sand. And it was proverbially used in, in Judaism to refer to something that was extremely small. And so that's why, you know, if some people have heard, well, we can't trust the Bible because Jesus says that the mustard seed is the smallest seed in the world, and yet it's not actually the smallest seed in the world. Jesus is speaking figuratively here. He's using hyperbole to get his point across. We shouldn't get too concerned with this literally not being the smallest seed in the world. But this mustard seed that, smart, that starts small, it, it certainly doesn't stay that way. These mustard plants, they could grow to being over 10 feet tall. They would make massive garden plants at such heights that their branches were actually thick enough that birds of the air could actually come and land on them. They could make nests in them. Something that started out millions of times smaller than these birds now can hold all of these birds And Jesus uses this picture to describe the kingdom of God. He says the kingdom of God is going to start small, but it's not going to stay that way either. And of course, we have the benefit of history. We've seen history prove this true. The kingdom of God starts small with the son of a Galilean carpenter and a small group of followers. The book of Acts tells us that at Jesus' death and resurrection, there were probably only about 120 people that were there with Jesus following him, but it didn't stay at 120 The book of Acts tells us that it's strategically written actually to show us the incredible growth of the church, that the church is growing and growing and growing, not just in Israel, but instead it's also growing among Gentiles. It's growing in these people that are not like the Jews. It's pressing ever onward toward the ends of the earth. This parable of the mustard seed is reminding us that we need a global vision of the church. 
That we can be too narrow-minded at times, thinking of, of only the growth here in our backyard, what we are looking at, and yet the global vision of the church shows that this parable is still working its way out. You see, it's significant to note that this parable includes, uh, or it's significant to note that this kingdom includes Gentiles. Ephesians 2 tells us that the Gentiles are actually those who are on the outside of God's kingdom. And what we see in, in the gospel is, is the fact that, that they are brought in, that they are welcome into God's family. And Jesus actually hints at that here in this parable. In this parable, Jesus seems to be, when he talks about the birds of the air, he seems to be drawing on this imagery from the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 17 says this, On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it, it will dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches. Birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I will bring low the high tree and make high the low tree, dry up the green tree and make dry, the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. In the context of Ezekiel, this image of every kind of bird is probably referring to the fact that all of the nations will someday take refuge in the kingdom of God. And so when Jesus talks about the birds of the air here, it's probably this reference to it's a, probably a reference to this unexpected nature of God's kingdom. That God's kingdom is going to be made up of people, not just the not just the Jews ruling over all of these Gentiles, but instead it's going to be made up of people from every language, every tribe, and every nation. And again, we see this truth today as well. Do we not just think of the very fact that we, primarily non-Jews, primarily Gentiles, as a church, we now exist. But it's not just us, it's, it's people who don't look or, or talk or even think like us either. Over the last few decades, we've seen the locus of Christianity, the center of Christianity, shift toward the south and toward the east. Now there are more people who follow Christ in the developing nations than that do in the United States or in Western Europe. And the gospel continues to go forth. It continues to spread. New tribes, new nations, new languages are being reached with this message of the gospel every single day. And Jesus tells this parable to assure us that his kingdom will one day fill the earth. This morning, uh, I, I was praying in my office, and the kids were with me. And one of the things that I try to do on a, um, on a daily basis is I, I subscribe to this um, list of, of countries to pray for. It's called Operation World, and today we were supposed to pray for Afghanistan. 93% of the population of Afghanistan is unreached, according to Operation World. And so I had my son, Silas, sitting right there. And I said, hey, Silas, do you want to pray for Afghanistan? And he just thought it was a fun word to say, you know. And so, you know, we start praying about Afghanistan, and, and he says, why are we praying for Afghanistan? And I said, well, it's because they don't know Jesus. And he's like, why? And it's like, well, it's because no one's told them. And he said, that's sad. That's sad. Let's go. <laughs> okay. I should have read Luke 10 to him, this idea of, you know, the Lord calls people into the harvest, not... not Toddlers call people into the harvest here. But that, that's the understanding, this global vision of how God is at work, not just here, but God is using people across the globe. God is bringing his message to, across the globe to new people who have not heard it. And Jesus tells us this message to remind us that his kingdom will one day fill 
the earth. And today we are ever more closer to that truth. Every single day we, bring, we get closer and closer to this truth of the message of the gospel going to every single square inch of the globe. You see, Jesus tells us these three parables to give us the right expectations about his kingdom, the right perspective about his kingdom. Instead of having the wrong expectations, he, he, he tells us instead of being discouraged about his kingdom by what seems to be the state of his kingdom, instead there is something different we should have in mind, that Jesus is Lord over the growth of his kingdom, that Jesus is the Lord of the harvest, and he is committed to his kingdom's growth. That kingdom grows where the seed lands on soft, soft, willing hearts, on soil that is ready to receive the word of God. And that kingdom, it's one day going to fill the entire earth. So wherever you are this morning, I just want to encourage you that this passage gives you a complete unshakable confidence in in two things. First, I want you to, to understand Jesus is completely committed to the growth of his kingdom. It doesn't matter what the headlines say. It doesn't matter what what we may perceive, how we may be discouraged. Jesus is committed to his kingdom, and it is growing. It will continue to grow until it fills the earth. It may come slowly. It may not look the way that we think. It may not seem significant in the midst of so much pain, in in the midst of so much hurt and hostility in the world, but his kingdom is growing. Second, thing that we should not lose hope of, not lose sight of. Jesus deeply cares about your heart. That's how his kingdom grows. It's through soft hearts. And that's the focus of this first parable here. Jesus cares about how you respond. Jesus cares about you seeking him as his disciple. Jesus wants you to join him in his kingdom. If you haven't been baptized before, maybe seeing this baptism is something that that speaks to you and you say, hey, I want to do that. That's something that God is calling me to do. It's not an act that saves me, but it's a declaration that I've been brought into Jesus' kingdom. But for some of you, this talk about discipleship, you wonder if that's really all for you. After all, you're aware of how much junk is in your life, how much baggage you have, how much you've screwed up in the past. And if that's you, I just want you to consider one thing as we close. Why does Jesus use the image of a mustard seed? Why does Jesus use the image of a mustard seed? After all, Jesus is using an image of something that starts small and grows significantly larger than how it started. Uh, Jesus could have just used the image of a cedar tree. Actually, that's what Ezekiel does, this passage that he kind of alludes to. The same principle is true. The cedar tree grows a lot bigger than a mustard tree does, even though it starts as a much bigger seed. So why does Jesus use this image of a mustard seed? In the first century, actually, mustard seeds or mustard plants were considered by some people to be weeds. They were not at all desirable. Some people grew them in their gardens, but other people, they didn't want them. They, they saw them not, as all, not at all desirable. So why does Jesus use this image of a mustard seed? Could it be? Because that's the type of people Jesus uses. That's the type of person that Jesus uses in his kingdom, that his kingdom is less like a majestic, beautiful cedar tree made up of all these people who have their lives together, people who have cleaned up their life, those who are the movers and shakers of the world. And instead, what if it's more like a mustard plant? What if it's more like those who are are people with failures, 
of people who, who just, other people may see you as a weed. Those who have too many faults, too many failures, too many shortcomings. Jesus is all about using broken and imperfect people to build his kingdom. In fact, he's so committed to that, that's the only type of person that he uses. And so if you feel like there is no room in God's kingdom for someone like you, can I just assure you that that's exactly the type of person that Jesus wants in his kingdom? That as you hear the word of God, this question comes up, of, of what about my heart? Are you willing to have a soft heart? Are you willing to be a, a heart that responds with faith, with obedience, and with repentance? If that's you today, don't, don't pass up the opportunity to respond to the gospel with faith. Obedience today matters because someday it might not be possible. Jesus is Lord over the growth of his kingdom, and we can be so confident in his plans for his kingdom. We can be confident in his desire that we are wanted in his kingdom, that he wants to use us to grow his kingdom. So what kind of heart do you have? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this message of the gospel, this message of the kingdom. And, and Lord, I pray that we would have hearts that are receptive to it, hearts that are receptive to how you are at work in the lives of every single person here, that you are speaking to every single person here, calling them to respond with obedience and faith. And so, God, I just ask that you would be at work now, drawing us ever closer to you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.